For you, that's today Christians and their dealings with the Jews. Okay, are you speed wagon? Time for me to fly. We need to fly away from the Jews as much as possible. And uh, I looked up this song because in our Skype chat room, we were talking about how difficult it is to translate words. For example, there are a couple of really good examples in English. I don't know how they can translate well into German or other languages. For example, can I give you a lift? So somebody coming from another country and they hear you ask this question, can I give you a lift? And we know what it means, but it's an idiom. It's an idiom that goes back to stagecoach days when somebody was standing on the roadside and they wanted to ride on your stagecoach, but the driver was way up high. And so he would reach down, and the other person would grab the hand, and he would lift them up or help help that person up. And that's where the expression, can I give you a lift, comes from. doesn't translate well into other languages. Uh, and uh, there's time for me to fly. Well, in other words, somebody would take that very literally. Okay, I need to catch a plane. <laughs> no, no, no. Time for me to fly means I got I to gotta get out of here. Time for me to leave. That's what it really means. So we have all these idioms in our language, and that's true of Hebrew and Greek. And so what we're going to talk about today is the difficulty of translating the uh, Bible languages into English. Yeah, Ario Speedwagon. Uh, hopefully not fly away. No, we'll, we'll stick it around. It's, it's figurative. It's a metaphor, right? <laughs> No, I'm not proposing to a real woman. <laughs> I'm just going through the motions. Okay. Languages. I I think you can understand why I'm so in love with language and the difficulties of it and it's the fascinating differences between, for example, because I'm bilingual, it's almost impossible to translate the poetry of you know, a, a German poet into English because the words, especially if they have anything re- relating to the forest or German history, the the words are so filled with meaning of the of the forest, the the well, let's say the elves and you know like the in Britain you still have you know the stories of also elves right the pixies, the pixies. I believe those pixies still exist. They're not fairy tales. Oh, fairy. That's another word for it, fairy. But today, what are the, what's a fairy mean to you? <laughs> How about the word gay? What does the word gay mean to you? Right? Turned into a pillar of salt, frozen in fear, heart attack. There you go. Excellent, excellent metaphor, nimble horse. Frozen in fear. Like a pillar of salt. That's a metaphor of the ancient world. So we're going to dive into this, this, Errors in the Greek text behind modern translations. And who is this by? I see. I hate it when the author doesn't give his or her name right at the beginning. Anyway, let's get into it. Attacks on the critical text of the Greek New Testament. In fact, I was thinking what actually drove me to this was I was listening to an attack on an Australian television program on transgenderism, right? And it's a very conservative site from Australia. They're actually quite witty people. And this one lady who was an Australian, and the way she says the word part 
P-A-R-T, is incredibly un-English. She says, pot. Welcome and become a pot of our show. They don't pronounce the letter R. All right, so all you Australians and all you Britishers, learn English. (laughs) The letter R should be pronounced. So you can imagine how difficult it is to translate the written word. And when you're listening to somebody (laughs) pronounce the word part as pot, what are you talking about? Pot of gold? What are you talking about? The difficulties of translating languages are just incredibly complex. So let's get into it. In the last 120 years, the attacks on the, how do you say critical in in Australia? Critical? I I don't know. Text of the Greek Greek New Testament and corresponding defense of the Textus Receptus, or more broadly, the Byzantine text have taken various forms. Bergen argued that the manuscripts that Westcott and Hort favored were vile. Oh, my God. Gee. Polluted. Degenerate. Heretical. But they were still correct. (laughs) Hoskier, or Hoskier, saw them as heavily influenced by Latin. This was before the great papyri discoveries. Several others have extrapolated an inference from the doctrine of preservation since the majority of the Greek manuscripts are of Byzantine text type. So, how much of a difference is there between Byzantine text type and Latin? The Byzantine is the text form used by the church and blessed by God, or are we talking, yeah, Latin Greek, that is Roman Greek. Okay, the, the Byzantine is the text form used by the church and blessed by God. Oh, yeah? Who says? <laughs> I guess the Byzantines say that. And since preservation must have the corollary of accessibility in order for it to have any value, the most accessible text must be the preserved. Well, that can't be right either, can it? Just because it's more accessible doesn't mean it's worth preserving or worth preserving more than any other text. And this is what I have to say about the King James Version. Even though it is the most accessible and the most commonly used, it is horribly translated. It is a horrible translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. We have to deal with that, and that's why we in Identity, we use the word study method. And actually, it goes back to the uh, Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession, paragraph 8, where it says very, very wisely that when discussing Scripture, you must conclude or you must understand that you have to go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek in order to have an intelligent conversation about the text. Because it's if it's trans, the Greek is translated into English, French, German, Latin, whatever, there are going to be tremendous nuances of meaning, and none of these languages will capture the nuances of the Greek. They simply will not. And that's a perfect example that Nimblehorse put in the chat room that we're talking about the pillar of salt that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. That's a metaphor, folks. Not saying it's it's not impossible for her to be literally turned into a pillar of salt, but that means frozen by fear. Have you ever seen Have you ever seen somebody frozen by fear? In fact, it reminds me of the video this guy did a couple of years ago at the, the beginning of COVID, actually, where he got onto an airplane and everybody's wearing a mask, and actually the mask mandate had been lifted this is the right after the mask mandate had been lifted and he got on this airplane and said i'm going to give a thousand dollars to any of you people wearing masks to take that mask off i'll give you a thousand dollars and this one woman yeah it's an aramaic idiom and this one there was you could see this woman she was wearing a mask 
And you could see her eyes and her, well, it was a photograph, so I, I can't tell you how rigid her body was, but just her eyes, her eyes wide open. You could see the fear in her eyes. The absolute terror in her eyes. Oh, no, I'll never take this mask off. I'm going to die. Fear. Now, what is the very first thing in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, that lists the attitudes, crime, sins, etc., of those who will not make it into the kingdom. And the first category is the fearful. The fearful will not make it into the kingdom. Why? Because they don't understand anything. They're subject to fear. They're not part of, well, first of all, they're probably not part of the covenant, but even Israelites who are part of the covenant, if they believe Jewish lies and if they believe COVID and are fearful of it, they should know better than to get a shot. The shot will do more harm to you than anything else. Then standing still as if you were frozen in fear, right? You're better off standing. But if you're standing still frozen in fear, then that makes you easy prey for a shot. Okay? They, they, at least they don't have to hold you down. That's absolute horror. Yes. Okay? So, the, of course, that that is not a metaphorical word there. The fearful. But why are they fearful? And a yeah, heart attack? Yeah, you can get yeah, yeah, rigor mortis, right? People who have heart attacks get rigor mortis really quickly. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen a person have a heart attack and within 30 seconds be completely stiff. That's when you're, they have, what do you call that? A uh, uh, myo, myocardial infarction or whatever they call it. Anyway, where the heart attack is so severe that your heart muscle really tears apart. And obviously, once your heart muscle is torn apart, yeah, there you go. Lot's wife, she must have got the clot shot. <laughs> Stiffened her up. When your heart muscle is completely torn apart, well, there's no more blood being pumped into, into your body, okay? So, with the snap of the finger, you are a pillar of salt, okay? Right. <laughs> Bavaria man says, years after the incident... The cows were still licking the pillar of salt from the book of Jasher. Okay, so let's continue. Uh, the errors in the Greek. We're having too much fun here at Eurofork Radio. We, we got to stick to the text, right? All right, so so let's continue. So, but uh, the comments here, I mean, the comments, the, the, how should I put this? The lack of judicious commentary from one Judeo-Christian to another. Well, number one, it shows you, wow, they're really passionate about their beliefs as to what is the better translation and what isn't. They're very, very passionate. But to call these guys polluted, degenerate, vile, (laughs) Ah, that's a a little too far. A little too far. Okay. But let's continue. So, where was I? All right, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Okay, so Byzantine is the text form used by the church and blessed by God, so the author says. And since preservation must have the corollary of accessibility in order for it to have any value, well, any value, some value? I mean, what's accessibility mean? You know, well, you can go to any bookstore and buy a King James Version. The other versions are harder to get. But the... There, oh, well, there's so many other versions uh, that, uh, to, in my opinion, are better. Uh, even that Catholic version, which is the, uh, uh, oh, I forget the name of it now. Uh, I, have a, I have it right here on my desk. How could I forget the name of my favorite version of the Bible? All right. It's not the King James because it has too many errors. And it is... But even though it was written primarily by Catholic scholars, 
the Jerusalem Bible is by far a better translation because it contains the names of Yahweh and Yahshua. It includes the name, the word race, where it needs to be expressed instead of just, well, people, nation. It should be expressed as race in many passages. The Jerusalem Bible does that. We can point to all kinds of failings of the King James. But I would I would simply say, well, one of the major, major failings of the King James, and it's quite possible the Jerusalem Bible was also affected by this, was the Masoretic insertions or deletions. Masoretic interpretations, interpolations, and definitions. The Masoretes were Jews who did have, they were the only ones who actually possessed the Hebrew scriptures uh, past 70 A.D., the Christians no longer had access to any Hebrew scriptures. So they had to rely on the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation. And the Septuagint, far and away, is better than the Masoretic text. Far and away. However, even the, even the uh, Septuagint modern translations are infected by, let's say, the virus that infected the Masoretic text has also infected the Septuagint. Why? Because scholars say, oh, well, the Masoretic must be correct in this case. Even though the translations of the two differ, the Masoretic must be correct, and we should follow the Masoretic because the Jews wrote that, right? We have to follow the Jews. They know Hebrew, don't they? No, they don't. (laughs) They only know Jewish Hebrew, which is not the same as Israelite Hebrew or Mosaic Hebrew. But this is a point that most translators totally ignore. Okay? So let's continue. So all these words, what's accessible? Well, the, the one who's most popular, just because it's popular doesn't make it the best. Continuing. Therefore, this is the form of the text that is the most abundant. It is the preserved text. Now, preserved. Is it really preserved? No, it's not. Because, well, actually, I'm talking about the Masoretic. I'm sorry, they're talking here about the Greek. So let's continue. Nevertheless, the Septuagint is 100% Greek. So you get the perspective of 70 Judahite scribes, not Jewish, Judahite scribes, who knew both Hebrew and Greek and were able to translate directly from the true Hebrew scriptures around 250 B.C. for Ptolemy Philadelphus, the pharaoh or king of Egypt. I I think they stopped using the term pharaoh already by that time. The king of Egypt, who was a Greek. All right. So that translation from the Hebrew into the Greek is far more accurate than what we have from the Masoretic text. Far more accurate. And in fact, that is the text that Yahshua Messiah, Paul, and all the apostles referenced when they were quoting the Old Testament because they simply no longer had any access to the original Hebrew documents. I think uh, Herod actually destroyed those wherever he could. And he certainly destroyed the genealogical records of the true Hebrews, the true Judahites, and the true Israelites, okay? So given the fact that we've had so many of our ancient documents utterly destroyed, and Napoleon was guilty of this too, because when he went and invaded Egypt, he destroyed the library (laughs) at Alexandria. His cannoneers took pot shots at the Sphinx and blasted chunks of the face of the Sphinx away. I mean, this is what happens. Well, this happens during war. Okay. So we have to understand how difficult it is to go from one, not just one language to another, but the language reflects the culture, the idioms, the mindset, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And in translating from an old text, something that's 2,000 years old, into modern English is a real challenge. Number one, the translator has to be fluent in both languages. Otherwise, that person would never be able to 
catch wind of the idioms, the slang, you know, the, uh, the jargon, jargon, because there's a lot. For example, in the Old Testament, where uh, I think it's in the Song of Solomon, where the person, I think it's a woman being quoted, where she says, I am black. It does not mean that she has black skin or black hair. She's using the term upon herself to describe her sinful condition. Okay? And that, we still use that terminology today. Black. Your soul is <laughs> full of black spots. What are those black spots? They're the sins that you have committed. Okay? All right. And... Uh, uh, Nimble horse comment, salt was made by dripping salt water from a height of about six feet, and tall pillars were made for a commercial basis, and these pillars looked like people from afar in the twilight or fog if you fall. But then you get up close and say, hey, hey, I could use some salt on my hamburger. So these, so are we black or ruddy? Oh, no. Let's not get into that. What does ruddy mean? Okay. Well, I did get into that uh, with uh, some of the people who were there yesterday, these uh, Hebrew roots people who were total 100% universalists. And that word Adam means to show blood in the face. I was pleased to discover because my friend Jim and I went uh, up to Shepherd's Chapel in Gravette, Arkansas. Correct my pronunciation. I've always been pronouncing it Gravette. But the locals pronounce it gravit with the accent on the first syllable. And I purchased a Strong's Concordance. And the first thing I checked before I bought it was what is the definition of Adam? And we know that many of the concordances have been Judaized to translate that word Adam as red dirt, or simply red, or rosy, or ruddy. But I know my very old Strong's Concordance has to show blood in the face, which actually means more like, well, it means ruddy. Pinkish, pinkish skin, right? And I was very pleased when I looked it up, it's still there, to show blood in the face. The Jews had not influenced that recent translation. Praise Yahweh. Okay? so the, But these are the things we have to contend with in trying to analyze the Scripture. So it, it goes without saying that modern Christians, and uh, Brother Rick and I were talking about this extensively, the modern Christian churches are so, so deep into the muck and mire of their own apostasy that they never even consider the historical meanings of these words. Never. It doesn't even cross their minds to do a word study. You know, so my image of an identity and one of our people, the covenant people, is to have a Bible in one hand and a concordance in the other. You have to have both because there are times when you simply have to look the word up and say, what does this word really mean? in Greek or Hebrew. So, the, the statement made by, by those in mi- medieval times, uh, they understood. In fact, uh, the earliest translators disagreed on the you know, proper meanings of these words. They didn't have a concordance. They didn't have, the King James Committee did not have a concordance. They were simply guessing, or even worse, they were relying on Jewish advice. So the Westminster Confession, I believe it's paragraph 8, where it says, in matters of dispute over translation, we should always consult the original languages, the Hebrew or the Greek, to resolve the dispute. That is perspicacious, wise, intelligent, would that we had that kind of wisdom in theology today. We do not. 
they all assume, well, I got a degree in theology. Well, Jesus didn't have a degree in theology. <laughs> Neither do I. But I'd be, I, I, I'm damn sure if I were to debate one of these universalist theologians, I would put it in its place. Because I know that they don't translate these passages correctly. It's abundantly obvious. Okay. So, anyway, this is, oh, Daniel B. Wallace on the side panel here. Daniel B. Wallace has taught Greek and New Testament courses on a graduate school level since 1979. He has a Ph.D. from, oh, no, oh, no, ah, Dallas Theological Seminary. That's bad. That's bad news. Why? Well, just like Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, these were the first two to adopt C.S. Schofield's Bible, cross-reference Bible, which is all universalism, antinomianism, dispensationalism, and all of the other garbage that is taught by the Christian world today. Universalism. So, Dallas Theological Seminary is one of the mainsprings of universalism. So we can expect him to be saying rather eerie, unwise things. Okay, and he he has you know I mean he's used several words that I would not use to you know describe other people. I give I think well let me put it this way: I give the translators credit to the extent how difficult a job it is to translate from one language to another. So to use such derogatory terms toward, you know, uh, these Westcott and Hort is just incredible. But I think he might be quoting somebody, but nevertheless, it shows the attitude that various theological schools have towards one another. And as far as I'm concerned, they're all wrong anyway, so you can call each other names. Go for it. All right, so let's continue. So therefore, let me start the sentence over the, uh, regarding the Byzantine text. And since preservation must have the corollary of accessibility in order for it to have any value, the most accessible text must be the preserved text. And that's not true. Who preserved it and why? The earliest theologians that preserved any of these texts were Roman Catholics. How much of that has been distorted? And we find a lot of the time that, uh, well, the uh, the Peshitta, the Aramaic Bible, has better translations than the King James or others. Okay? So you, you should be able, you have to be able to consult, and especially the Peshitta, since it's Aramaic, these people understand, they still, still speak Aramaic today, they would know the idioms far better than any English KJV theologian. Far better. Okay? So that's not true. The most accessible text must be the preserved text. That's simply not true. He continues, Therefore, this is the form of the text is the most abundant is the preserved. No. No. Abundant. Who says what abundance is? <laughs> okay? I would say it's very easily determined, but if you use the word study method, which which translation or which text, whether it be Latin or Greek, because everything that's converted from Hebrew to Greek, and more and more scholars are recognizing the fact that the New Testament was first written in Hebrew, not in Greek. Pastor Martin was very insistent on that point. And indeed, we, we found the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew in India. Why was it shipped off to India? I guess because neither the Orthodox or the Catholics wanted to consult it. So it's been founded in, in India. Various chapters of the Bible have been found all over the world, especially in the Middle East, even in Egypt. And so when we look at these manuscripts, either in Aramaic or Coptic or what have you, or even even Slavic. Chapters of the Bible have been preserved in Slavic as well. 
And you get the nuances of meaning in some of these translations better than in the KJV. Essentially, the KJV, since it was translated by people who relied too much on Jewish input, it is really a horrible, horrible translation. Nevertheless, because most concordances are referenced to or tied to the KJV, Others aren't. Thayer's is not connected to the KJV. I forget which translation Thayer's is connected to. But uh, we have alternatives. We have alternatives. And uh, I'd say the Peshitta is one of the better ones because it preserves the Aramaic. So let's continue. So, and he, he comments in a parenthesis expression here, of course, such a stance has no basis in history. I think he's criticizing the idea. Is this a quotation? If, I don't see the quote marks, so I'm not sure. You know, hey, learn English literature, <laughs> Mr. Wallace. Uh, is he, anyway, he says, of course, such a stance has no basis in history, for the Byzantine text was not in the majority until the ninth century. Okay, very good. Okay, so apparently he's criticizing a Byzantine author, but unless this is a really long quote, I can't find the quotation marks. But let's continue. For the passages deduced to prove the preservation of the text means something different altogether. <laughs> for God's modus operandi, M-O, for God often, if not usually, works through the remnant rather than the majority. Oh! Ooh! You got that right, Mr. Wallace. More recently, some have argued that the progenitors of the modern critical texts, Westcott and Hort, were incipient New Agers, and that they have somehow managed to dupe virtually all seminary students, Dallas Theological Seminary excluded? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> dupe virtually all seminary students and professors who unwittingly adopt their text. No, I say the exact opposite is true. Not that their translation is motivated by New Ageism or occultism. They, they have accused them of occultism as well. No, they weren't influenced by church Greek. Universalist definitions of non-universalist words. From that perspective, Westcott and Hort are far better translators than any universalist Judeo-Christian translating committee. Okay? And then he says, on this score, what is almost never mentioned is the advances in the last 120 years in manuscript discoveries, research methods, or solid evangelical scholars whose academic credentials are unquestionable. So you, you literally have to, you know, if you have a passage, you obviously can't read 30 different versions of the Bible. But what you can do is when you come to a problematic verse, a problematic verse, then you just follow the Westminster Confession. You consult the original Greek and Hebrew what does it say in the original Greek and Hebrew? You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to do this. All you have to do is consult the word. Typically, a verse like this, a, uh, oh, what's the term? Well, anyway, a particular verse, whether it's a part of a verse or a whole verse, and take the word, the question, the word, the offending word. There's always going to be an offending word if two different translations disagree or if this particular word is translated in a wide variety of manner from from one verse to the next. So if that's the case, then you have to do some deeper study. You have to do some deeper study. And that's what I've learned from Bertrand Compare and Dr. Wesley Swift and others who are identity scholars, many of whom, uh, Arnold Kennedy as well, who was conversant in Greek, and you know, see what they have to say. And consult these. You especially want to consult somebody who's conversant in Greek. Because they can tell you what this word means in the secular world of Greek, as opposed to how the theological world can, can translate the same word. It's not going to have the same meaning. 
because the theological word is, world is going to color the meaning to suit themselves. That's what the Dallas Theological Seminary has done and Moody Bible Institute has done in universalizing the text. Okay, So in that sense, it's always good to refer to a theologically neutral linguist. Somebody who knows Greek, even if, he was, even if he's an atheist, to find out what the original word really means. He's not going to color the translation with his theology. You have to get these nuances and these different perspectives, especially when there is a major disagreement in translation. Oh, yeah. Seven of none. How about translating John 3.16, for example? Well, yeah. I mentioned that yesterday. I said, oh, yeah. The the world, so Yahweh so loved his son that, you know, uh, that he gave, put him into the world, you know. Well, how about the other expression by John where he says, love not the world, <laughs> okay? So, Yahweh so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, that directly conflicts with John where he says, love not the world. Well, it's, the world doesn't mean world as we know it today. It doesn't mean the planet. It doesn't mean the globe. It doesn't mean the flat earth. It doesn't mean any of that. It means the people living there, the people being addressed, the society. I prefer to use the word polity. Polity means the extant political, cultural worldview at the time. So there was a polity for Israel. And there's a polity for the rest of the world, okay? So when John says, love not the world, he means don't love the heathen world. Don't love the heathen world. But there is a world that we should love. It's our own world. Yeah, brother, the Adamic society, the system, that's good too. Completely order of arrangement. Yes, there you go. Whose order of arrangement? Ours. Not that of the Jews. Not that of the heathen. Not of the, that of the Hebrew roots people. <laughs> but of the covenant message. So unless you understand the covenant message, which is what the Bible is all about, you will have a false view of John 3.16. That's that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, a a, a global mistake. <laughs> Pardon the use of the word global, or a universal mistake has been made by those who falsely translate John three sixteen. Okay, they try to universalize the word world in that passage. Yeah, and they, oh yeah, and a good, very good, Paul Eric, and then they say the law has been done away with. Well, which verse says that? They're just reflecting their ignorance of the fact that the word law, nomos, is used in various different contexts and meanings, like even today. We say if a cop pulls you over and wants to write you a ticket, you said you have a, a confrontation with the law. But actually, you only had a confrontation with a police officer. Now, maybe you'll have, you go to court to contest the ticket, and then there's another part of the law, namely the court system and a judge. And you may even be confronted with some bars. Right? You, may, you may actually be locked up. That's part of the law too. And it's really obvious to us who preach the covenant message that the law that Paul was talking about uh, in Colossians 2.14 where the Judeans get it totally wrong, said the law has been done away with. No, it hasn't. What was nailed to the cross? Yahshua clearly said in John, no, Matthew, Matthew 5, I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. I come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill that portion of the law, my kinsman, redeemer, responsibility, 
which did away with only one aspect of the law, which was what? The blood sacrifices. He fulfilled that part of the law, that part which Paul clearly says was only temporary. The rest of the law was unaffected. Okay. And Brother Ebert says, well, yeah, there's a, a, Paul Eric says there's a law that uh, can put us to death, right? And Brother Ebert says fulfill also means to, to teach. But in that context, both in Colossians 2.14, what was nailed to the cross was not the Ten Commandments. It was not anything, any other part of the law except the fact that our sins were forgiven. The sins of the Israelites, the covenant people, he, he, by our kinsman redeemer, were no longer in effect. He did away with the animal sacrifices. That's all that was accomplished at the cross. Now, the word there is chirographon. If Paul had meant to say that the law had been nailed to the cross, he would have used the word nomos which means law in Greek. But the word chirographon simply means handwriting. So you have to think. Put on your thinking cap, Israel. What did Yahshua Messiah come for as our kinsman redeemer? Was it not to give himself for our past sins? So what was nailed to the cross? Our past sins. That's it. That's what was it. The record, the written record of our sins. That's what was nailed to the cross. Not the law. Okay? But uh, these Judeos never think in these terms. Some Judeo, some universalist pastor came along and said, Oh, the whole law, the entire Old Testament, that means nothing anymore. We are now New Testament Christians falsely believing that the Jews were the Israelites of the Old Testament, and they have a completely cockeyed, there's a good word, cockeyed, view of the scriptures. One eye open, one eye closed, and another eye, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, re- I'm referring to the pineal gland, which, uh, which is which is actually a multidimensional gland that enables you to see. If thy eye be single, that may be an oblique reference to the pineal gland, which has been frozen solid by vaccinations, so you can no longer access that intuitive world where you might get inspired by Yahweh or the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians say, I got the shot. And I felt like my connection to the Holy Spirit was severed, blocked. Oh, my God, I never forgot that shot. Well, we tried to warn you. We tried to warn you, but you wouldn't listen. And so let's continue here. Oops. Errors in the Greek text. I had to switch out of it and come back to it. So I think I'm back to the... Uh, correct part of the document. We're at 1145 here. So on the next paragraph, on a more popular level, the argument is purely ad hominem. Okay, ad hominem meaning personal. What I, what I believe, what I tell you, what I believe may not be the truth. It's not a priori, which means what I see with my own eyes. I'm just giving you what I believe. On a fairly regular basis, I receive letters, emails, and even videotapes in which I am vilified for not considering the King James Bible as the only word of God. Yeah. Has that happened to you? The King James only crowd? They can be, oh, brutal. It's funny that the King James only people preach love, 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 love. But when you disagree with them, all you get is hate, 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 hate. These are people who call themselves Christians. 
So even this guy, Dallas Theological Seminary, has been victimized by that. The arguments are almost, in fact, some of those, uh, you have been listening to me when I was back in uh, Revolution Radio days, when I was doing uh, shows on this subject constantly, there was one caller from Indiana who has now passed away, praise, thank you God, thank you Yahweh, who constantly called me a King James denier because I, I criticized this translation and that. Well, yeah, I, I don't deny the entire King James, but I just deny the bad translations. And then he called me, he, he had the audacity to call me a universalist right? a, and, and a preterist. He, he went, now that was insulting because I was always been a historicist in terms of interpreting biblical prophecy. Never a preterist, a, pre, a, a diehard preterist insists that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. My response to those people is, well, the book of Revelation was written in 90 AD. <laughs> so, so how can all prophecy have been fulfilled in 70 AD? Come on. Give me a blessed break. But this is the muddy thinking that occurs in the minds of people who call themselves Christians. What a sad, sad, sad state of affairs. So, Nimblehorse says, I thought Jesus died for Israel's sin pass from Eve's fall to Jesus passing on the cross. From his sacrifice forward, we Israelites are under judgment awaiting his... Yeah, I mean... The baptism, when uh, Yahshua instructed the apostles to baptize, baptize unto repentance. Paul continuously tells we have to be repentant for our sins. Okay, Not only that, we have to align ourselves with the covenant message. I mean, there are Israelites out there who do not accept Yahshua as their Savior. What's that, uh, by, that song? Never been a sinner, never sinned, blah, 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 Jesus. <laughs> right? It's all still subject to our interpretation. And the more ad hominem, that is our own opinion, we throw upon the translation and interpretation, the worse it gets. That's why we must consult concordances and we must get the right definition of the original Hebrew and Greek words. I know I'm repeating myself, folks, but the Bible is a hammer and translators are nails. <laughs> right? And I'm going to pound away because we must consult. Let me put it this way. You, you must understand the mindset of the author who composed the original document. And if you're imposing your modernist mindset on the writings of Paul, you will get everything, virtually everything wrong. For the a good example is the word adoption. The word adoption does not belong in Scripture. It does not mean to adopt, and by the word adopt, well, the universal say, well, we Israelites can adopt anybody we please. Whites, blacks, Jews, Negroes, Indians, etc. But the word huothesia, huothesia is the Greek word falsely translated as adoption. It means to place as a son. Paul, the context of the passage is becoming an heir. You grow up. You get wise. You become, you become a covenant Israelite, not just a plain old Israelite who doesn't know tit for tat, black from white, Jew from Israel. And there are Israelites out there who don't know these things, right? We have to maintain our love for them. Despite their ignorance, you have to maintain hope for them that they may eventually be converted. Thank you, Brother Rick. Be converted. 
Although some people I know say, well, it doesn't look too good. <laughs> yeah. Going to that place in the sky, right? What sky? You know, the the the, the world, the sky of the twilight zone, that fictional sky, or the or the heavens spoken of in scripture. Two very different concepts, right? So let's continue. And so I know we're making, or I'm light, making light of a lot of this stuff, but it just goes to show you. The even though this scholar considers this stuff very, very seriously, he's obviously still a universalist, and because he's a universalist, he might as well be criticizing himself because the world of the Dallas Theological Seminary is totally universalistic. They might say a, a true word now and then, <laughs> right? But very little of what comes out of that seminary is covenant message, if anything, all right? In fact, the greatest, the most perspicacious statement I ever heard coming out of the mouth of a Judeo-Christian was when I was driving, I think I was in the state of Kentucky, and I just occasionally tune in to the AM stations where all of the preachers reside, Okay, and listen to their sermons and see, is this universalist, has he got anything right? <laughs> right? From the covenant perspective, of course. And the statement of the two theologians or preachers, I shouldn't give, the average preacher is not a theologian. This guy's a theologian. Theologians have degrees, right? But they may not know much about the Bible because they have the wrong perspective. But this one guy who was being interviewed said, well, modern Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. Now that, of course, is figurative language because Christianity has no, (laughs) you can't measure it with a yardstick or a tape measure, okay? But obviously what he meant is, well, there's a broad category of people who call themselves Christians, and but their understanding of the Bible is very shallow. It's obvious what he meant. The in- interviewer said, hmm, I've never ha- had anyone say such a thing. But thinking about it, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> okay. So it is possible for these people to get to get insight with this figurative language, okay? And really, oh man, that, that really is true. The average Judeo Christian preacher is very shallow. His understanding of scripture is very, very shallow. Okay? And he says the arguments are almost never substantive, but simply emotive, experiential and condemnatory. So even a theologian at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, can feel the invective of those who have shallow thinking. Anyone who writes in this area is subject to such attacks. Dr. Bruce Metzger, for example, tells of a shocking letter he received. Metzger is a fine German surname, meaning butcher, If you go to a butcher shop in Germany, the sign will say, Metzger, this is from a Christian who is so caught up, speaking of butchery. (laughs) Okay, I'm wondering, does the author understand that the German word for butcher is Metzger? (laughs) This is from a Christian who is so caught up over what you and your so-called friends have done by rewriting the Bible. It would give me great pleasure if I had a bus or a jeep and could run you down. This is from one of those love, love, love Christians. And then prop you up and run you down again. I'd kill you twice. Now, it's one thing to be zealous. Yahshua said, I would rather you be cold or hot than lukewarm. If you be lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. But the 
tendency toward arrogance and only I can be right and you must be wrong because I am right. That's not humility. That's not humility. What did Yahshua say? The meek shall inherit the earth. And of course, that word meek means humble. You have to be humble. First of all, not everybody is going to have your understanding, whether you're right or wrong, your understanding of the text. But I would say if this person who wants to run this guy down twice has not done any word studies, then he is shallow thinking, erupting. (laughs) And then he says, May you and your family be cast into the pits of hell, you bitch of all bitches. Wow. I didn't know that Christians used the term bitch. <laughs> who, ga- who gave you the right? Oh, no, he misspelled the word right. <laughs> or maybe he was just using it figuratively. Who gave you the W-R-I-T-E to do this? This is really funny. You shall die early for what you did. And then the letter was signed. Can you believe this? In Christian love. (laughs) So and so. I hate you so much that I love you. Metzger appropriately filed this letter along with numerous others in the crackpot folder. (laughs) I love it. I love it. The crackpot folder. Now you understand why here at Eurofolk Radio we teach the covenant message, which is based on doing the word studies and the logic of the bloodlines, which we are the only ones who do it. Yeah, we can have fun with this. We can make fun of those who don't understand, but we do it in the sense that hopefully Yahweh, because we are commanded to operate in brotherly love. Now, unless that person like this letter really disrespects you, that even if I got such a letter from this person, I would respond very politely. Uh, I can explain to you how you're wrong. Let's discuss it. Okay? And I remember very much a, a, a very sincere Christian lady commented on one of my shows, Pastor How can you believe what you're saying? It's totally contrary to what my church has taught me for 50 years. And I said, well, because your apostasy has been predicted by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says right there, there will be a great falling away from the true faith just before the second coming. And I'm sorry to say, lady, you have been victimized by this great falling away. You must understand the covenant message and stop you know, calling me names because you don't agree with me. All right? So, let me put it this way. I know that the covenant message is the 100% only correct interpretation of Scripture because clearly, from the beginning, the 12 tribes of Israel and, uh, well, actually from the bloodlines, Genesis chapter 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 22. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel and no other people can be considered the covenant people. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time. And back to Ario Speedwagon. Here we go. For the of the false of the war.